0: This is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Haslam. We know by now for certain that robots are coming to steal not all, but some of our jobs. And shifts to automation also mean that workers whose positions aren't becoming obsolete will still need significant training. So how can we make sure that workers aren't an afterthought in our changing labor landscape? That's the focus of a series we're running here at Policy Options called Preparing Citizens for the Future of Work. Earlier this year, a conference at the Queen's International Institute on Social Policy tackled the same question. Many of the speakers from the event are contributing to our series over the coming weeks. Ethan Pollack is one of them. Ethan is the Associate Director of Research and Policy for the Aspen Institute's Future of Work initiative. He joined us from Washington to discuss how countries can create skills training programs that will ensure workers are ready for the new economy. Hi, Ethan. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So by now, I think most of us have heard or experienced that the labor market is changing and going to continue to change with automation. Can you explain what kind of jobs are going to be most impacted by this disruption?
1: Sure. What we have seen so far is that um, the jobs that are most likely to be impacted by uh, technology, in particular kind of automation, uh, is routine jobs and jobs that are kind of uh, codifiable. Um, So these are jobs that involve... Uh, tasks where there's very little problem solving or unexpected factors on the job. So example like warehouse work is, is, is a very good example. And this is not the same thing as kind of low skill versus high skill. I think there's this idea that high skill jobs won't be affected. Low skill jobs will be uh, are much more vulnerable. There's some truth to that. But there's many high skill jobs that are also that also have routine tasks uh, if you think about like a uh, if you're a lawyer doing a, a doc review, uh, that's a very routine job that could potentially be automated. Being an accountant uh, is similar, and there's many low skill jobs that also are difficult to routinize. For example, caregiving. You know, obviously, if you're caring for a child or or an elderly patient, there's so many variables to take into account that'd be very difficult to uh, to automate jobs like that.
0: Right. And can you give me an idea of how fast this shift to automation is happening? We kind of frequently talk about it as if it's in the distant future, but of course it's going on right now. And I'm wondering if there's a certain time frame that we can expect to see these changes manifest most clearly.
1: Yeah. So I, I think it's it's always important when talking about kind of what's going to happen in the future to, to keep a bit of perspective in mind that you know automation has been significantly disrupting the economy for the last two centuries. And you really started taking off in the late 18th century with the first industrial revolution. Um, now, there's a question of, whether you know and there's a question of whether we're even in a you know a period of high automation or potentially even low automation right now going forward obviously there's a lot of uncertainty but i do think that there is a rather convincing case that there are certain technologies such as uh, artificial intelligence and adding onto it you know machine learning um that really are potentially game changers and could create inflection points, making automation much more disruptive in the future than it has been in the past. So I think that in part, the question is really, if there is kind of higher disruption in the future than there has been in the past, like when does that disruption hit, right? Because you know, automation is happening every single day. But if we're seeing something that's going to be outside of historical norms, then when does that come? And I think that it's It's very hard to tell, I think, sometime in the next few decades. I think you know um, uh, autonomous vehicles, for example, uh, I've seen anywhere from uh, you know five to twenty years that will obviously have a huge disruptive impact. But also just the nature of AI and machine learning. like it, it is difficult to tell exactly both when the technology will uh, advance to the point where it can be incorporated into most jobs. And then at that point, understanding, When it's not just the technology itself, but when it actually, you know, when businesses adopt that technology. And that is also something that I think is unclear. Um, I think it's close enough in the future that. Policymakers should be concerned about this. And this is something that we should start, you know, not just policymakers, workers and businesses as well. We should also start thinking about potential disruption in the future and ensuring that the economy that we have is one that is resilient and and could weather some of those potential storms.
0: Yeah, and I think there is a lot of fear among all generations about whether we're actually prepared enough for this. Before we get into policy, like you mentioned, I'm curious what you think the role of education and academic institutions is in guiding us through this change.
1: A lot of the academic institutions we have in place are traditional institutions that largely focus on you know traditional higher education and providing a bachelor's degree and then possibly moving up from there masters you know or professional school or something like that. Um we don't have great institutions for providing skills training specifically. And that is a challenge. It is definitely the case that traditional higher education is very important. We should continue to invest heavily uh, in quality and access to higher education. But at the same time, I do think that we need to really think about either using the existing higher education institutions or developing new institutions for better skills training, because it is going to be the case that workers are going to need new skills over the course of their career. And we need to make sure that they they have access to that training.
0: Mm-hmm. And before we talk more about skills training, like you mentioned, I've heard you use a term while discussing this subject called degree inflation. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Great follow-up question to the previous one, because I think degree inflation is actually a symptom of our over-reliance on traditional higher education. Um, and I don't mean over-reliance in the sense that fewer people should go to it, but rather that it's really the only game in town. So when uh, an employer is trying to figure out you know, how, how capable a, a worker is, there really is very little standardized kind of skills, credentials, you know, things that you could say in your job posting to say, I want to make sure that, that this worker has these credentials. So oftentimes what, what employers will do is they will use a requirement for a bachelor's degree as, a, uh, as kind of a proxy. For looking for someone that is highly capable, and that's really—I mean—it's—it's it's a really bad proxy for for that. So, like, there's a, a a recent report found that about 30% of job postings that require a bachelor's degree didn't legitimately need one. And and a good example is actually like executive secretaries or executive assistants. Uh, over two thirds of those postings now call for a bachelor's degree, but less than one-fifth of of those workers that are currently employed have bachelor's degrees. So there's been a huge, so it's very clear that the people that currently are working in this space do not have that type of education, yet in new job postings, that education is being not just asked for, but required. And that suggests not, you know, we know that those types of jobs are not changing drastically. I mean, you know, they're, they're definitely changing, but not in a way that would necessarily require a, a bachelor's degree. Um, and so, you know, the hypothesis is that businesses are just saying, well, you need a bachelor's degree but not as a way to filter a variety of job applicants, but not necessarily because that is what the job really requires.
0: Mm-hmm. And then do we have an idea of where the people that would have been qualified for that job previously before this inflation are landing in the labor market?
1: Great question. I I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I mean, I think that generally speaking, um, many of them will decide to go get a college degree um, and possibly take on a lot of student debt in doing so and um, may have slightly higher access to jobs, but their financial situation actually may be worse off. For others, they may just end, you know, themselves end up in in positions where uh, they may be able to do a job that better leverages their talents. But- they're not able to get access to that job because they don't have a college degree. So they will be in some sense, uh, if you look at their skills and look at what they're doing, in some sense they will be uh, overqualified for certain jobs. What this all leads to is just horrible mismatches between what people are capable of doing and the jobs they are employed in in the economy. And that's definitely bad for workers, that's also bad for the economy overall.
0: And I want to get back to now what you mentioned earlier, the role of companies in all of this. How much historically and at present have North American companies focused on the growth of their workers' skills?
1: Yeah. um, So historically, both the U.S. and Canada have relied, more the U.S. than Canada, I think, have relied on businesses to invest in their workforce. but. A lot of other countries outside of North America you know rely a lot more on the government or on trade unions or other type of kind of sectoral organizations uh, to play a large role in ensuring that workers um, continue to have uh, skills training over the course of their lives. And, and I think that you know our model, at least in the US, is you know you go through basic K through 12 education, you possibly go through higher education, and then you get a job. And hopefully you're lucky enough to get a job where your employer will train you. The, what we're seeing is that increasingly employers are less and less likely to train their workers. Um, and what they are moving towards is a model where instead of instead of hiring potential, you know, so they're hiring people who they think that they can develop. Instead, they are just trying to buy talent. You know, you you have a. Um, You have an opening for a position that's relatively high-skilled. In the past, what businesses would do is they'd look for workers that they think that they could potentially skill up for that job. But increasingly, what businesses are doing, they are not investing as much in their workers. They're trying to find workers that they can just plug in that will be ready to go on day one. And now, obviously, this is a problem because if every company is trying to, you know, Buy talent that already exists and buy workers that are already pre-trained, then the question is, well, who does the training? And I think that increasingly we're 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 seeing that that um there's a lot of businesses that are being essentially free riders and that are trying to um trying to free ride off of the training that other businesses provide. And increasingly, the businesses that are providing training are saying, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. So and and that they're then they're pulling back. So I think it's a bit of a, uh, a I don't want to say death spiral that may be too uh, alarmist, but that explanation kind of uh, explains why you are seeing a decline in uh, business investment in the workforce.
0: And so, from a policy perspective, what can governments do to encourage and incentivize businesses to actually invest in their workers?
1: Uh, there's a number of things that 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 governments can do to ensure that uh, that their workers are prepared for the new economy. Um, there's two basic approaches that I think governments should should look at. One is how do we give businesses the incentives to train their workers? You know, as, as I mentioned, I think that increasingly there, there that there's less and less incentive for businesses to train their workers because increasingly businesses are kind of free riding off of the training that others are doing. So how do you realign those incentives to make sure that when businesses train their workers, that it is profitable to them? So one is trying to get businesses to engage more and invest in their workforce. The second is actually to have to provide workers the tools so that they can actually pursue training on their own. So they're less reliant on their employers to invest in them. And this could be either because they are employed, but they don't have an employer that is generous enough with their skills training, right? Or maybe they don't have an employer, and you know we know that there is, you know, millions of workers that are self-employed, and you know these are workers that also need skills training. They will also be affected by automation. Uh, so we need to make sure that there is access to skills training for all workers, and that's why I think it's important to think of systems for skills training that are not just within the employer-employee relationship, but outside of it. Um, So at the Aspen Institute Future of Work Initiative, which is where I work, we've proposed a a number of uh, policies One being a tax credit, uh, similar to the US's uh, research and development tax credit, uh, that would provide a tax credit for businesses that are increasing their worker training relative to to previous years. Uh, So you're not not providing a tax credit for all the training that they do, because obviously businesses do training every single year. If you provide a tax credit for it, you're just subsidizing training that they would be doing anyway. Instead, you're subsidizing an increase. You're trying to get uh, businesses to move up to go to the more high road employers. And the second is lifelong learning and training accounts, which these are personal accounts that the workers own that can collect contributions from the government from employers and from the workers themselves. And the workers then choose how to use them, but they they have to use them for skills training. Um, Both of those proposals have actually been introduced in the U.S. Congress. The Worker Training Tax Credit, we have a bill both in the House and Senate. And actually just today, literally in the last hour, there was uh, our lifelong learning and training account proposal was introduced as a bill in the US Senate so we're we're very excited about that and uh hopefully i don't think that that much is going to happen over the next two months, uh, and, and then we'll have a new Congress in January. But we're very excited to see kind of the new members come in and hopefully take another look at these ideas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. These are really innovative ideas. I'm wondering if you know if there are similar programs that exist or, or are already in motion in other countries.
1: Yeah, definitely. So worker training tax credits are, or tax incentives are are actually fairly common internationally. Um, we don't have one on the, at the federal level in the U.S., although there's uh, some states that have it. Um, but to give a couple international examples, um, in you know, Austria provides a 120% business deduction for training expenses, um, and uh, France provides a business credit. Uh, this is more for entrepreneurs. Uh, equals the number of training hours uh, multiplied by the, the minimum wage. Um, and then there's also the European Union actually a report that recently looked at a variety of training incentives across Europe and found that many of them were actually fairly uh, effective and uh, that the policies did indeed encourage job training uh, and required less administrative overhead than a lot of uh, government programs. So that was very, that's very encouraging. Um, the, for lifelong learning accounts, a, a number of countries that are experimenting with this, uh, Singapore recently established individual learning accounts. Uh, so everyone, every citizen over the age of 25, um, they get, um, um, a, I believe it's a subsidy of around $500 into their account and they can spend it on a variety of education and training programs uh, from a list of around 500 uh, approved providers. France also recently established individual training accounts that workers could use to pay for about 24 hours of training per year uh, over eight years. So I think that there's there's a lot of, you know, the U.S. is not the only country that's looking at this. I think that, you know, one of the uh, the lessons in this broader conversation around automation and the future of work is that a lot of different countries are experiencing a lot of very similar trends and and thinking along um, along similar lines. And I think that just really highlights the importance of of you know programs like yours in in really kind of taking this this international, perspective so that all of these different countries, as we are independently doing policy making, that we can really learn from each other and learn from a lot of the lessons that other countries are experiencing.
0: Ethan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great chatting with you.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: That was Ethan Polak, Associate Director of Research and Policy for the Aspen Institute's Future of Work Initiative. Make sure you check out the rest of our series on preparing citizens for the future of work on our website. A few episodes back, I mentioned that Policy Options had been nominated for two Canadian online publishing awards. We're thrilled to announce that we won silver in the categories of Best Podcast and Best Column. Thanks to our small but mighty team here who make them possible. And thanks most of all to our guests, contributors, readers, and you, our listeners. If you want to get in touch with us or sponsor this podcast, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, or send us an email at policyoptions.irpp.org. I'm Maddie Haslam, and this is the Policy Options Podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for tuning in.